Thank you, Sarah. And thank you all for coming out here today. It's, um, for me, a real thrill to be back in Vermont. I went to college here a very long time ago. Uh, and uh, I was planning to come here in 2020. Uh, as Sarah noted, I, I work at this intersection of cultural diplomacy and literature. And in my job running the international writing program, I travel around the world quite a lot but usually to pretty lousy places. And uh, that spring, I was due to give a keynote address at a book festival in the Bahamas, a poetry festival in Crete, and the Vermont Studio Center. So of course, we have a pandemic and that's that. Um, I would have given uh, three years ago a much different reading that I'm going to give tonight. Uh, in fact, even a week ago, I might have given a different reading that I'm planning for tonight. But uh, several days ago, and you've probably seen this in the news, the uh, Russian uh, forces uh, launched a, an Iskander cruise missile at a popular pizzeria in uh, Kramatorsk in Ukraine. And among the victims was a writer who I was very close to, uh, Victoria Amalina, poet, fiction writer, uh, founder of the New York Literary Festival in Donetsk. Uh, there's a very small town called New York there. Uh, incredibly courageous woman uh, writing. She gave up writing fiction during this war to document war crimes, uh, to, doc to, to do research on war crimes. And uh, among other things, she was in uh, that pizzeria that night because she was showing uh, a delegation of Colombian writers and journalists around. Uh, so I wanted to dedicate this reading to her. Her funeral today was in Lviv. And uh, here's one of her poems. It's called Sirens. Another air raid alert as if they are walking the entire country to the execution, but shoot just one of us, usually the one at the edge. This time, not you. All clear. So, and I think one of the reasons why I, I, I was wanting to read something about her and to read in her spirit was that uh, at about the same age, she was 37, uh, it's 36 at the time the, the war started, I started covering the war in the former Yugoslavia at that same age, and I, I knew that kind of energy and zeal and idealism that uh, was guiding her. It was what guided me as well, and I thought that maybe I would read some things in that spirit. I also, on Saturday, just got the first copy of my new book. It's called On the Road to Lviv, where Victoria's funeral was today. It's a book-length meditation on Adam Zagajewski's wonderful poem, To Go to Lvov, as it was spelled in Soviet times. Uh, meditation also on cultural diplomacy and on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I traveled to Ukraine for the first time in 2006 on a cultural diplomacy mission, which was a rather odd experience because uh, I got a, an email one day from a colleague at the State Department and said, call me about your trip to Kyiv. Uh, and I said, what trip to Kyiv? I called him and he said, you're going in three days. Oh, really? Okay, that's quite a distance. Um, I went there and uh, the Foreign Service National, that would be the cultural specialist within the embassy, assigned to be my control officer, uh, was uh, 
an interesting figure. We were driving from Kyiv to Lviv. It's a very long drive. It was the coldest winter in memory. And the van we were in was unheated. And my control officer was clearly going through menopause because every few minutes she'd have to roll the window down for a hot flash. And I was in the back with a Ukrainian novelist, a very small woman, and we were so cold that we took all the clothes out of our suitcases and draped ourselves in them as we were driving west. And that's the, that's the starting point for this, this book-length poem. I'll just read a few, a couple of pages of it. The globes of mistletoe in the bare trees in an irradiated area west of Kyiv, a silent colony of children signing prayers in unison, and gloveless women hauling sleds of kindling along the icy path by the soccer pitch on which the SS shot the Jews, and murders of crows clearing the road of carrion save for the wolf splayed on a drift of snow. The miles unroll in an unheated van past wheat fields, woods, and telephone poles topped with empty stork's nests spreading out like miters. In every village there is a new church crowned with a green dome, onion-shaped and layered with murals of the Savior resurrected beyond the statues of the fallen order of planes and tanks of a seminarian scorned by his classmates and a novelist crippled in the Great War, of the red rider spurring his horse to fly toward a ladder nailed to a cross outside a cemetery embellished with blue, green, and orange banners, then castles, cattails, and horse-drawn carriages in which the children huddle under the sheepskins and a pack of stray dogs loping across the road and tractor trailers sliding down the hill, so much for gauging what a traveler from the Imperium can document with his own eyes at 30 miles an hour. O fickle muse of history, I cannot imagine or invent lives for the peasants glimpsed in this dream of war and independence. Somebody must repair the train, the bridge, and the iconostasis hacked to pieces by a believer who lost his only son to cancer. Somebody must draw a map to the statue of the Virgin in a village cleansed of its original inhabitants, where a peasant arguing with a young priest over the deed to the cathedral raises his fist and the barracks empty at daybreak. A scene derived from a 19th century novel refracted through a diplomatic lens. Why are we driving to the western border, not to Odessa, birthplace of the brilliant Anna Akhmatova and Isaac Babel? Natalia, the Foreign Service National, who rolls her windows down with each hot flash and will not roll it up again until I cloak myself with clothes from my duffel bag, ignores all questions deemed political, including venues, meals, accommodations, and Russia's near abroad, i.e. Crimea, the Baltics, Belarus, and anywhere one Russian nationalist can be found. And that's how it starts. Um, so then I'm going to read uh, from another book. Uh, this is called, uh, and being in Vermont is what prompts me to, to read from this book. After the Fact is a, a book of uh, prose poems that the late Marvin Bell and I wrote back and forth over the course of 
10 years, we published the first volume, Scripts and Postscripts. Uh, we finished the second volume at the start of the pandemic and uh, started the third volume uh, and got to, well, we got to page 29 before he passed away. And uh, so I wanted to read a couple of these in uh, honor of, of Marvin, who taught at Breadloaf for, my God, I can't even begin to think how, how long. But I wanted to have his voice in the conversation. And here's one of his called Afterward. They who had been to Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey and to Thomas Harding's, Hardy's Dorset Cottage now planned to dig up Shakespeare, but only if he had written the plays attributed to him. So they waited for a definitive announcement. Meanwhile, they debated whether Yeats was a pawn or Eliot an anti-Semite. They were searching the past for examples of a great writer without an unforgivable flaw, even one of those vices against which a slight resistance would, would have sufficed. Their thoughts were displaced from context, and thus were the bitter conclusions of those condemned to forget the past. I myself was surprised at the arduous climbing Yates must have endured on the stairway of the dank castle to which the future would make pilgrimages, ignoring the poet's plea to pass by. Inside Robinson Jeffers Tower, I mounted a spiral stairway hidden within a wall to the roof where the poet could see then an unobstructed Pacific. And old Eliot, leaving having Groucho to dinner, wanted only to talk of duck soup. There have been times for truth, charity, humility, good cheer, fantasy, and decency, even if the times were not most of the time. Poetry after the Holocaust, yes. As for the Tsar and the Bolsheviks, then and now a plague on both their houses, the very curse the bard put into the mouth of the dying Mercutio, for whom neither the love of Romeo for Juliet nor that of Juliet for Romeo would be a balm. Language being reductive, it is perhaps ill-advised to judge a person by what he or she says. Despite the sign in an overgrown section of the Saint Michel Cemetery, I was unable to find Pound's grave on San Giorgio Maggiore. I went looking to find Pound's, I went looking because I had once received from a poet snapshots of Pound's room in St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital with the clear implication that he, she had visited E.P. for intimate purposes. One must imagine the epic that was Russia during the reign of the Tsar, grist for the mill, er, artistry in the air and the poor underfoot. My father died young. Had he stayed in Russia, he would have died younger. We visit the graves seeking longevity. So this was the answer I wrote to that. It's called The Fountain House. It came up in one of the conferences I had today. It's about Anna Akhmatova. The long years in the communal flat across the courtyard from the palace with her ghosts, her packed valise, her lover's wife steaming fish in the kitchen. There were informants everywhere and in the walls from which hung paintings and photographs an icon and a pair of wooden skis were listening devices. From the silence she monitored came a requiem for her generation. Can you describe this? On her table were letters, her son's identification card, drafts of poems. 
I see it all at one and the same time, she wrote, a definition of poetic vision. From her window I saw a white cross and through a scrim of red and yellow and green leaves, the last rays of the setting sun. My notes revealed nothing of the emotion I felt among the things of the woman Stalin called our nun. The picture I took of the three crones minding the museum didn't turn out. But that night, in my hotel room when I finished packing, I found a grainy photograph of Akhmatova posing on a marvel sarcophagus like the Sphinx. Man is one answer to the riddle of her poems. Day and night is another. The fate of her brilliant artist friends, glory, madness, suicide, execution, exile, death, didn't escape her lucid gaze. Sleep before my flight at dawn was out of the question. And the second one I want to read from this book is called Afghanistan. She said that what I saw I did not see. A predator drone ta taxiing down the runway of an airbase near the border with Pakistan and taking off toward the mountains. And where I went, I did not go. A house in which young women wrote in secret, nibbling tea cookies in a narrow white room that looked out on a snowbound garden. And what I heard, I did not hear. A story told by the crippled woman seated by the wood stove who used both hands to straighten out her legs. Let's go to school, her father said when she was little. School a marvelous word for a girl confined to her house. What did I see? An old man rubbing his dislocated shoulder beyond the street of butcher shops, a bomb-sniffing dog biting its trainer's arm, Soviet medals for sale on a table covered with knives. Where did I go? The gym, the canteen, and the duck and cover, a windowless bar on the other side of the tunnel. What did I see? The, what did I hear? The whir of helicopters, the footsteps of an aid official running on the treadmill, acronyms, PRT, IDP. The armored vehicle that took me to a roundtable discussion was called an MRAP, mine resistant, ambush protected. The soldier swiveling around in the turret, aiming his, his mounted gun at cars and buildings, couldn't believe the mission was for poetry. The word on everybody's tongue was kinetic, i.e. dangerous. I was marking days off the calendar in my hooch when the duck and cover warning sounded. Under the bunk bed I crawled to wait for the all clear signal. What did I see? A photograph of a green-eyed Afghan woman taken before the Russians came. Everybody knows her. Here's an, another one from uh, Afghanistan. It's called Samangan. What are the odds of surviving a high-speed head-on collision on a rural highway in Afghanistan? All I knew in the moments before a taxi passing a truck veered into our car was that it would hurt. My hosts, believing the Taliban would not disrupt our journey to a pre-Islamic shrine in Samangan, had advised me to wear a light green shalwar and kameez, pajama-like trousers and a tunic. 
Hence the man who pulled me from the car thought I was Afghan. A crowd had gathered which suggested how long I had been knocked out and they were yelling at the taxi driver. Both cars were totaled and both of my hosts had broken their arms. A doctor from our group was cradling an unconscious boy whose fate we would not learn. What did I know? Where the Hindu Kush meets the Central Asian steppe, Buddhists carved a monastery in a hillside, which the Mujahideen later used as a base in their fight against the Soviets. The walls and ceilings of the caves were black with soot, but they had survived the Taliban, unlike the Buddhas destroyed in Bamiyan. Our guide, accompanied by a guard armed with a Kalashnikov, knew less about the stupa than the doctor, who drove me through a sandstorm to a hospital in Mazari Sharif. The Taliban's spring offensive was about to begin, and after an attack on Kabul, with suicide bombers and gunmen killing or wounding hundreds of men, women, and children, the Department for the Prevention of Civilian Casualties warned drivers to, quote, follow all traffic rules, close quote. A sense of humor goes a long way in a war zone. Sarajevo, 1993. The muscles in my lower back, torn on my first reporting trip to the besieged city, flared up again on Thanksgiving. Hunched over, I shuffled from the dining room table to the couch in the same pain that I experienced in the basement of a house rented to humanitarians, which for one long day and night was the target of Serbian gunners in the hills surrounding Sarajevo. During a lull in the bombardment, I went upstairs and out onto the balcony to survey the damage, dust rising from the detonations, an acrid smell of gunpowder, the distant thudding of artillery. A bullet flew by my head lodging in the lintel, and as I dove through the door twisting under the weight of my Kevlar vest, my back seized up, an injury that took weeks to heal and then only partially becoming a form of muscle mem memory that returns whenever the weather changes. War is what I remember most vividly of my walk in the sun. If it determines the key in which I love, grieve, and write, then these words carry overtones of the rounds that landed outside the house in which we were debating what to read in the intervals between barrages. History, poetry, erotica, our meal by candlelight was a joyous occasion, despite the humanitarian fare, and I was grateful to record the stories of men and women who worked long hours helping those who had lost everything. What did, what did they decide was best to read? Erotica, of course. Desire trumps all. And I think I'll, two more. Back to Iraq. Shockwave. No sooner did I say that it felt as if we could be driving in an almost normal city than a, a car bomb detonated 300 meters away. In Baghdad's Karada neighborhood, killing four policemen at a checkpoint and wounding eight. A shockwave broke over our armored vehicle, momentarily deafening me. Flames shot up between the buildings we passed and black plumes of smoke rose from the street littered with the burning hulks of cars. Faster, said our Iraqi host, 
a poet professor who had a story from the war with Iran, how he was dragged from a classroom during an exam before he could finish checking his answers and ordered to the front, how he deserted with two friends in the midday heat, entered what he called an artificial forest. Sounds like a bomb is about to go off. <laughs> Thank God it didn't. We, we've lived another day. Uh, and how, uh, and, and uh, entered what he called an artificial forest and met a security agent who gave them water to drink, how his plea to visit his mother did not prevent his arrest. When he escaped from detention, his father took him back to the front and begged the commander to, to let him go. Careful, the poet told the, ride, the driver. The blare of sirens everywhere. The city was on high alert. The bombing marked Saddam Hussein's birthday, a village dating from the time of the Sumerians. Oh, and I'm missing the next page. So you're just going to have to guess what that was about. <laughs> I will tell you how the story ends, not on the page, but I, I, this was in 2017. And uh, uh, I was in Baghdad that time with the mayor of Iowa City. I had played a role in getting, uh, I gave the idea to colleagues in Baghdad that they might try to become a UNESCO city of literature. And that did work out. And when Baghdad got its first female mayor, what she, one, one of her first decisions was to reinstate the flower festival. So she invited me and our mayor to go to the uh, flower festival. And I thought that, you know, as a writer, that's too good. You can't pass that up. And, and I was grateful that our mayor, a retired geography professor from the University of Iowa, was eager to go too. And so we flew there together. We did all the events that we had to do. And this night we drive back, and of course, you know, now we're all kind of freaked out. We get back to our, our uh, hotel, the Babylon Hotel. And the mayor, I should tell you, is a rather large man. And we went back to our rooms, and we were, I was just packing. You know, we had to leave at 5 the next morning. And there was a knock on my door, and I thought, oh, God, what is this? And I, I go to the door, and there's our mayor in his underwear. And I'm thinking, has he lost his mind? I mean, you know, what, what's going on? And he said to me, have you looked at the swag they gave us? I said, I, I said, no. They'd given us a big, a whole bunch of things. I said, but, and he said, they gave us Rolex watches. And I said, <laughs> I said, that, that's not possible. I'm sure they're knockoffs. And so he comes in and we open up, I open up my thing. Sure enough, it's a Rolex watch worth, I, what I found on the internet was worth about $8,500. And, you know, a bunch of other gifts, uh, a portrait of, of, of me and all these things in it. <laughs> So I had to call this poet professor, at, you know, now it's after midnight, and say, Sadek, you know, um, we're very grateful for these gifts. We figured that it might have added up to about 20,000 bucks a piece. I said, but you know, he's a mayor. I, I work at a public university. We, we just simply can't take them. And uh, uh, so we left them behind. Uh, it, it was kind of funny to think of leaving $40,000 worth of stuff behind. <laughs> but that's what we did. So I think I'll read you uh, one last one in a way to come to bring it back home, if you will. Uh, this is called Fantasy World. And in, in, in all three books, we, the idea was the first 45 uh, poems, uh, prose poems, were, uh, were just as they were with the title. And the final, uh, or the first 60 and then the final 30, all had dates or a particular moment attached to them. 
this one uh, is uh, Fantasy World, November 20th, 2019, the public impeachment hearings of Donald Trump. When Jennifer Williams, a Foreign Service officer detailed to the Vice President's office, swore an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, to the House Intelligence Committee, I thought I recognized her from a cultural diplomacy mission a decade ago. My control officer's instructions for my first engagement in Beirut were unnerving, given the travel warnings issued by the State Department for Lebanon. Take a taxi to Fantasy World, a family-themed fun park in Daia, a largely Shia district in Hezbollah stronghold in South Beirut, then cross the road to the high school. A young diplomat, Ms. Williams, if memory serves, was waiting for me with her security de detail. She was anxious to start and stayed only long enough to introduce me to the class, reminding me before she left to take a taxi back to my hotel and send her the receipts. Our government is nothing but, if not cheap, right? Uh, I do not remember ever feeling so alone, but the students who were fluent in Arabic, English, and French seemed to embrace my idea that translating poems and stories from one language to another could be part of their, of their literary apprenticeship. And when they read aloud the writing exercise I gave them to describe a room in their house, it felt as if they had invited me into their lives. This was a fantasy, of course, like the fun park across the road which belonged to Hezbollah's financier, or the belief that truth might prevail in Congress. The diplomat testifi testified that Trump's phone call to the Ukrainian president was unusual and inappropriate. It took me forever to hail a taxi in that part of town. Thank you very much. Thank you.